kids out the door to my left. And um, and the rest of you ought to be turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6 as we continue in our study. It looks like Mrs. Silva is heading to the nursery. And so if you have need for any of those, either children's church or nursery, I'm out the door to my left and you will find all that you need there. So Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 27 through 36. I don't, I don't know if you have ever heard the name uh, Nanette Hammond of Ohio, but Nanette Hammond of Ohio, um, uh, 40-something housemaker, has spent the last 21 years and actually dozens of surgeries and procedures and over $500,000 in order to look like Barbie. Not to be outdone, Rodrigo Alves has had 42 surgeries at a cost of also about $500,000 to look like Barbie's counterpoint, Ken. I can't even imagine the, the pain and the discomfort. I can't imagine the expenditure and the time so that to look like something else, someone else. And in this case, somebody that doesn't even actually exist. But to look um, much like another person, there seems to be a desire in us to image something, to look like somebody else. I mean, after all, not many, not only a very few people actually would exert the effort to um, that Nanette and Rodrigo have done. But we oftentimes exert effort to look like somebody else. I mean, various pop stars, whatever haircut or hairstyle they have or whatever their fashion sense is, we see people picking that up and following after that. Um, Perhaps after a pop star or an athlete or an actor. I remember when I was playing ice hockey a lot, we would, uh, a lot of my teammates, they would kind of have their jersey, the jersey would kind of hang down, but part of it, on the, like the left side, it would kind of get caught in their pants and they would put it up there so that it was kind of caught up in their pants up in here. And, and the reason being was because um, Wayne Gretzky, <clears throat> the greatest player who has ever played hockey, except maybe Gordy Howe, often after playing or during the middle of play, had his jersey kind of tucked up uh, above his pants and half of it was hanging down. I don't think... Uh, Mr. Gretzky actually planned that. It was just he played and that's what happened. And so many of my friends who none of us are even close to as good as Mr. Gretzky. Well, if we can't play like him, perhaps we can look like him. Well, we didn't even look like him, but it was always interesting how this trend started happening that we wanted to look like our Hero. It is said oftentimes when a child is born, people will look at the child and say, oh, she's got her father's eyes or, oh, she has her mother's cheekbones or something along those lines. In other words, she looks like her parents. They bear resemblance to the one who bore them. And today, as we continue looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling his disciples to bear resemblance to their father. It is one thing to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on plastic surgery to look like a toy. It is quite a different thing to be called by your heavenly father to emulate him and to look like him and to bear his image. And this is what Jesus is doing. So as we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount, just a quick Review. We, we need to remember that one of the things that Jesus is doing is that Jesus is 
training his his replacements. You'll recall that there's hostility that's increasing about towards Jesus and towards his mission and towards the things he's teaching. And so knowing that the cross looms in front of him, Jesus begins to train those who are going to take up the ministry after he has gone. And so he's training his replacements. And one of the things we saw last week as he began to train his replacements, his disciples, one of the things that we we learned right at the very beginning of this sermon is that kingdom values and worldly values are often in sharp contrast with one another. In other words, uh, what is valuable in the kingdom of God is often reversed from what is value in the kingdom of this earth or in 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 worldly values. And so kingdom values are often reversed from worldly values. But disciples, those who are followers of Christ, are to live in light of the fact that they are citizens of heaven. Blessed are you who are poor because to you belongs the kingdom of heaven. And so as kingdom citizens, um, this understanding, this truth that we our citizens of the kingdom of God enable the individual to endure the difficulties that the world um, that often accompany living in this world. And so whether we are hungry or we are mocked or ridiculed, we endure that because of the reality that this is not our home, but our home is heavenly, that we belong to a different kingdom, and we are already right now citizens of of the kingdom of heaven, um, heirs and joint heirs of Christ, and so therefore, as um, our citizenship clashes, with the values of this world, we endure and are able to endure because there is a much greater value um, that awaits us. And so that's, what he, that's how Jesus kind of began this Sermon on the Mount. And so this is where we're going to go today. So by way of preview, we're going to continue the Sermon on the Mount And we are going to learn of Jesus' extremely high ethical standards. Now, some people have called this section of the Sermon on the Mount, or perhaps even the the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, have called it the Mount Everest of human ethics. That is, it is the loftiest and highest ethic that a person can can, uh, seek to achieve. Now, here are some of the problems Two, two problems that the Bible student runs into when we consider the Sermon on the Mount and its lofty ethical standards. The first one is to read them and say, oh my goodness, they are just so high that I can never achieve them. And we throw our hands up in despair saying, why even bother trying? Because I can't do that, not in a million years. So that's certainly one element of uh, trying to draw out the meaning of this text. The, the second uh, difficulty the Bible student uh, encounters when dealing with the Sermon on the Mount is the exact opposite of that one, and that is to bring Mount Everest so low that it is no different from any other ethic that's out there. That we just strip away its beauty and its glory. We strip away its lofty peaks and we bring it down to our level so that we can achieve it. My goal today is to do neither. And so the student of Scripture, and in this case myself, I'm going to walk A very fine line, I believe, because I want to maintain the beauty and glory of this peak, this Mount Everest of ethics. And yet, at the same time, not frustrate us to the point of saying, you know what, we can't do it. So really, why even bother? Let's just dismiss this. That's something for somebody else, or perhaps maybe we can achieve it in the eternal state or in the eternal kingdom. Maybe then we can achieve it. No, people have conquered Mount Everest. 
And while it's difficult, it can be done. And so I'm going to put forth that Jesus is not providing for us an ethic that is so lofty that it is impossible, and yet at the same time, I want to maintain its beauty and glory. That's the goal, and you can pray for me. So the goal then is to draw out Jesus' intent and challenge this church to be transformed into the image of God. So with that, let's read our text today, uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 36, and uh, then we'll take a closer look at it. Jesus says this, he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. We pray, Lord God, to bless the reading and the hearing of your word. So in order to get at this passage of text, I think it might be wise that we begin at the end, that we um, start where Jesus concluded, because I think at the very end of this statement, Jesus is giving us the point he wants us to understand. So I think what I want to do is start there and then kind of work our way through these things. And here's where I'm going to begin with this phrase that your reward will be great and specifically, and you will be sons of the Most High. Sons of the Most High. I want you to understand that this was a designation that um, was given to Jesus back in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, that Jesus was designated as a son of the Most High, and that um, here the end result is that disciples would be considered sons, and if you don't mind me using gender-inclusive language here, children of the Most High. Now, we know that a child is, uh, and especially in biblical terms, a son is in the image of the Father. Jesus often, uh, said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And there were times when the Pharisees sought to stone Jesus because they said, you called God, your father, making you his equal. And so we have this idea of that the son looks like the father, that the child bears the image of the father. And here Jesus is saying that the, the end result of this Mount Everest of ethics is that you would be called children of the Most High, that you would bear His image, that you would look like Him. Now, I want to consider some, some, some Old Testament precedents here and, um, and work our way through three, I think, significant passages in the Old Testament and then bring us up to Jesus as the Son of God and hopefully then this will um, provide a... a, a a larger narrative by which then we can understand the ethics that Jesus um, details in this sermon. The first thing we should note is that if we go back to Genesis and we go back to Genesis chapter 1, when God is creating the heavens and the earth, that God, um, as the highest and most um, and the pinnacle of his creation was that he created Adam and Eve. And Adam 
was created in the image and likeness of God. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of that terminology, the image and likeness of God. But here's one of the aspects of being created in the image of God. This is one of the elements of being an imager of God is in the command that God gave Adam. And the command was this, be fruitful and multiply. You see, Adam and Eve were charged not only with tending the garden, but to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, you're going to have more images. You're going to bear children, and they also will bear the image of God. And the goal was never for Adam and Eve to remain in this Edenic paradise just by themselves in these in whatever the boundaries of this garden were, but rather to be fruitful and multiply so that the image of God would extend the borders of Eden, that the the boundaries of Eden would extend across the earth and that the image of God through being fruitful and multiplying would extend and cover the earth and the glory and image of God would then fill the earth with the image and glory of God. That was the original mandate. So part of being in the image of God is bearing God's image to to look like God and to bear His image um, across the land. But here's the thing. Adam fell. Let me say this. Adam failed. And instead of the image of the glory of God extending the boundaries of Eden, actually Eden became closed and the sinful man began to spread. And eventually God destroyed sinful man in the flood. Along comes Noah. And Noah is a righteous man. And God decreated the earth, if you will, in the flood. And when it was all over in the new creation, guess what the command to Noah was? Exactly the same as that to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply. You, righteous Adam, take my image and bear it across the the earth so that the glory of God covers the land as the waters cover the sea. That is what you are to do. You are an image bearer. Now, be fruitful and bear that image. This new image bearer failed. Not completely unlike Adam. Noah also failed in a garden, just like Adam failed in a garden. Then God called another son, the corporate son, Israel. And oftentimes God calls the nation of Israel his son. And the nation of Israel was called to be a light so that all the nations would see the glory of God and rejoice and glorify the God who made them. They were to be a light to everybody. They were to bear the image of God. Well, we're not surprised then that Israel failed. And began to worship images that were not God. Instead of being the image of God, they worshipped idols that were not that were made in the likeness of men and beasts. And so, with those three examples, we could probably find others. But with those three examples, we now fast forward to Jesus as the Son of God. That is, he is the exact image of the Father. And we see this in a couple of passages. First of all, in Colossians chapter 115, if we can bring up the next slide. Colossians 115, we see that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And in the second Corinthians 4, 4, we read, And in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, 
To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And let's not forget Hebrews chapter one, that Jesus is the exact imprint, the exact likeness of God, the father. And so we see now Jesus as the son of God, the exact image. He is the image bearer of God. He is, I believe, the true Israel. He is the perfect Israelite. He is the final Adam. And he is the one who will then be fruitful and multiply, making many children who will go into the world and bear the image of God, that the glory of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is now what Jesus, the son of God, is doing, is he is bearing fruit and multiplying and making more multiple images, if you will, those who will look like God, who will look like him and bear that image. And we'll see this as we go along. And Luke chapter 9 and 10, after Jesus has commissioned and trained his disciples, he first sends out the 12, then he sends out the 70 to preach the gospel. And then, of course, in the, in, at, at the end of his His ministry after his resurrection, he says, but all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth, a direct allusion to the book of Daniel, where we see the son of man who's been given all authority over heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of who? Of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded them in Acts chapter 1, 8. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other parts of the world. You will be fruitful, multiply, make many disciples, and you will bear my image over the earth. That is uh, the charge. I believe that is Uh, what is going on here. And so we see in Luke chapter 6, verse 35 and 36, that those that Jesus is training his disciples who will be the sons of the Most High God and bear his image and will go into the world and make more images and that the, that the, um, the kingdom of God will spread across the earth with image bearers. And so being an image bearer is to represent the father. So then we say, okay, well, if I'm supposed to represent the father, I wonder exactly how I do that. What does the father look like? Well, now we get into this ethic of the Sermon on the Mount, because here Jesus said, this is what the father looks like. Here's the goal that you will look like the father and that you will bear his image across the earth and that you as image bearers will be fruitful and multiply and you will continue to bear the image of God over over the world so that all the world will see the glory of God. Now we ask ourselves the question, what does the image of God look like? And here it is. Love your enemies. All right, so now we get into this, this, this idea of love in action. The first thing we need to see is that who is this addressed to? But I say to you who hear. So there's a whole lot of people listening to this sermon. But I'm, I'm speaking, Jesus says, I'm speaking to those who hear. Those of you who have ears to hear, hear what the Son of God is saying. Those who have the ability to hear God's word. Not everybody has the ability to hear God's word. Some people hear it, but take no thought of it. It doesn't transform them. It doesn't have any impact on their lives. Their eyes are darkened. But for those of you who hear, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower, an image bearer of God, this is for you to hear. This is for me to hear. Those of you who are disciples, the poor, the hungry, the outcast, the, the ridiculed and the mocked, I want you to hear what it means to bear the image of your heavenly Father. Love your enemies. First of all, we should note, this is an imperative. In fact, this whole sermon, this whole thing that we've talked about today, just about every verb in there is an imperative. There might be something in there that's not, but just about Every single verb is an imperative. In other words, what I'm saying is everything is a command. This is not, if you get around to it, think about loving your enemy. That would be a nice idea. No, this is, I command you, love your enemy. This is the image of God. Love your enemies. And I brought this up because 
It's kind of technical, but you guys seem to kind of like this stuff. So, this verse is really what we would call... A, They're parallel lines. In other words, love your enemies, um, where the second line generally um, repeats and helps us understand the first line. So, love your enemies. What does that mean? I mean, especially in this day and age, to love your enemies could mean feel good about them or think kind thoughts or send out positive energy towards your enemies. No, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying feel good about your enemies or think kind thoughts, though perhaps that's included. But what he's saying is love your enemies. How do I do that? Do good. All right. See, love is an action. When we're bearing the image of God and we're going to be called sons of the Most High, it means do good to your enemies. So this is one of the ways we would know what, what it means to love. Love is more than warm thoughts. More, love is more than a good feeling. You, you, you can elicit a, an emotion, but you can't command an emotion. I can't command you to feel a certain way. You can command somebody to do something. And Jesus here is saying, do good to your enemies. So let me pause for just a moment and maybe clarify this idea of love, because love is certainly, um, I don't, I don't, I think it's terribly misunderstood. What does it mean to love? Well, I think our best definition, maybe not even a definition, our best example of love is certainly Jesus Christ. So let's look at how does Jesus display or exhibit God-like, image-bearing love. And perhaps our most concise statement on this is found in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. And, and this is a massive passage of text that is so utterly dense, we can spend um, multiple days speaking on it, but I'm just going to briefly touch on it and then leave. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you're asking, how in the world does that demonstrate or define or illustrate love? Here's how. Jesus, first of all, does not grasp for himself. He does not cling to that which is his, but rather pours out himself for the good of another, namely you and me. In other words, I got everything I need. I am in the form of God. I have angels worshiping me. I create worlds and I can bring them to an end. I have all authority, all power, all dominion, all glory, all honor, and I will pour it out for your good. So love, then, is not clinging to self and to what we have, but rather pouring out for another person's good. And Jesus is our prime example. So, what is the Mount Everest of ethics? What is the love of God? What does it mean to bear the image of God? Love your enemies. That is, do good to your enemy. But wait, Jesus doesn't stop there. He brings up another parallel line. And I think that this is important. Let's move on to our next slide because this includes speech. There we are. So, in other words, it is not just simply doing good. Here are the next parallel lines. And I think this all defines what it means to love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Do you see the parallel lines? Praying for those who mistreat you. Blessing those who curse you. Those are saying the same thing. And they're all under the rubric of love your enemy. So how do we love our enemies? You do good to them and you speak well.
You bless them and you pray for them. So it's not only what we do, but it's what we say. I was reading this week about um, Asia Bibi. Perhaps you're familiar with her. She's a 51. She's now 51 years old. She's in a Pakistani prison, has been there for seven years for blasphemy. She's pre- preaching the gospel. And um, I know her health is deteriorating. She's, she's been given a death sentence. That they're trying to get that overturned. She has two children and a husband. And uh, the, she's been in this Pakistani uh, prison for seven years, and um, I read something recently where she says, I don't hate my persecutors, but I pray for them and bless them and pray for their good. Asia Bibi, the image of God. This is radical love. And this radical love has not always been taught um, by, um, by religious leaders in Jesus' day. The Pharisees often taught, you know, yeah, love everybody as long as they're part of, they're like you. The Essenes, which was a uh, kind of a radical group of people, but, very, but a prominent group of people, also taught, you know, you can just love the people who love you. And Jesus is saying, no, I want you to love your enemy. This does two things. First of all, it tells the believer that we may have enemies, especially as we go about proclaiming the kingdom of God. Don't be surprised that you have enemies. Now, what you're to do with those enemies is to do good to them, bless them and pray for them. This requires a supernatural love. So, now we have this idea. We're talking about what it means to bear the image of God, to be called a, a child of the Most High, and to bear His image. First of all, and it all revolves around this idea of this love in action, because love is an action, it's not a feeling. But now what Jesus does is he illustrates this love. So this becomes now love illustrated. Now, I need to pause here for just a moment, because at this point, it's going to become very easy for me to try to dismiss this next section and try to reduce it down to something achievable. My goal isn't to reduce it down to something achievable so that we can all go out and do it. I hope this is really where we get, it gets tough um, because we want to maintain that lofty standard, the, this Mount Everest standard, if you will. But on the other hand, we also need to make sure that we understand what is Jesus saying? Remember, the, the, the job of the Bible student as we exegete or draw out the meaning of the text is what was Jesus saying? And there will be a number of ways we can get about this. And so now we get into one of the most famous um, commands, and that is to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other. All right. So turn the other cheek. Well, let's first begin by what Jesus isn't saying. I think that will help us to understand then what Jesus is saying. So let's eliminate the things that he's not saying. First of all, this is not a command against self-defense, nor is it a prohibition from military or police service because the Bible speaks about all of those things positively. All right? You can defend oneself. Um, there, there comes a place and time for self-defense. The Bible does not condemn that. Nor does the Bible even con- condemn military service. You'll recall John the Baptist. Soldiers came up to him and said, what must we do? Um, what do we need to do? And he didn't say, resign from the military. No, he just told them how to live honestly as a soldier. And likewise, Paul tells us in the book of Romans that governing authorities are God-given, that the government bears the sword for, um, for good and that, um, that this is something that is ordained by God. So certainly this is not uh, a command against um, any of those things. And many commentators, have, so I guess then what is this? So um, let's try to get, get at that. Many commentators have noted, and, 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 I, and I think that, that they're, they're on the right track, that this is an insult when somebody slaps you on, on the right cheek, turn to them the, the other. So to slap on the right cheek in a right-handed way would have to be a backhanded slap, which would have been an, which would have been an insult. 
Alright? So, um, in other words, when you are insulted, when your love is met with physical hostility, and let's face it, as disciples, we may encounter enemies as we proclaim the gospel of Christ. That hostility is not an excuse to withhold image-bearing love. In other words, folks, love is vulnerable. And love offers us. Love comes again. Continues to minister at the risk of further hostility. So I think this helps us understand it. Also, I think when we look at some of the things that Jesus is not saying, for instance, Jesus is, is not making, I don't think he's making this an absolute. In other words, if he slaps you on the right cheek, turn your other cheek, and then you're free after that. <laughs> Only two times. You get two. I don't think Jesus is saying that. I, I read the story about a, an Irish boxer. I don't know if it's true or not, but um, uh, an Irish boxer who turned evangelist, and he was setting up his... Uh, his revival tent and getting ready to, to preach that night and a couple of young punks come up while he's setting up and start harassing him and one of them hits him and he gets up and says, well, Christ has commanded me to offer the other one and boom, they hit him. And this former boxer then takes off his jacket, rolls up his sleeves and says, Christ gave me no other command. <laughs> I don't think that's the direction Jesus is going, that you get somebody to... I think he's saying that the love ethic continues to offer itself even in the midst of hostility. Think about how often you are hostile to the gospel and to God's servants and how often you defame and diminish the name of Christ until the Spirit broke into your heart and caused you to repent. The next area we see is that the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. So again, let's look, first of all, at what Jesus cannot, I don't think he's saying. The first thing is, so in those days, basically you wore two pieces of garment. You wore a cloak and a tunic. All right? So if you were to give away both your cloak and your tunic, you would be naked. I don't think Jesus is saying, I want you to all go around naked. All right? That would be... Uh, I don't think he's going there. Nor is this having to have anything to do with protection of belongings. But I think the idea here is that it's people before stuff. That we hold our possessions lightly. And that if taken away by persecutors or haters, we continue to love them. And we see this, of course, in the book of Revelation. All over the, or we especially see it in the, in the book of Hebrews, where, where the author of Hebrews is writing, saying, you have, not, you have not suffered to the point of shedding blood, but you have had your properties taken. And in that case, we continue to do good to those who are enemies, and we continue to pray for and bless them. We then hear that you are to give to all who beg from you. Again, let's begin by what it is not. Because if all we do is give to those who ask of us, it won't be long till we're in need of stuff too and we become beggars. I don't know that Jesus is saying that, perhaps, but it doesn't seem that. But rather, to give without prejudice. This idea of give. Generosity is a concrete expression of love. Remember, love is an action and giving generously um, to those who are in need regardless of their of what you may think about that individual. We have people coming to this church often in need, wanting something. We try to be wise with the way we, we do things.
but it is giving in a way that is unprejudiced. I don't ask. Uh, We have people and perhaps they're living in a relationship that is not God-honoring, but they need their electric bill paid. If you're in need, we're going to try to help you. We have people living who've come to us and they're in same-sex relationships. And we don't say, get that straightened up and then we'll, we'll cover your medical co- we'll co- cover your medication. No, we're going to cover your medication. You can't, you, you, you can't afford those things. We can. Let's take care of it. We do so. And we do so generously and without prejudice. I don't know that we always succeed in these things, but that's the goal. And then Jesus concludes this with what we have called the golden rule, and that is, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In other words, others first. Notice the word do. There's the action. Notice to whom it is to others. We see the self-sacrificial love. This is do good to others, whether or not they do good to you. That's not the requirement. Well, once they do good to me, then I'll do good to them. That's not what he's saying. Consider the other person. Remember our text in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8. Jesus, who had everything, took the initiative and did good for us. And oftentimes, selfishness is at the root of conflict, and this is a command, this is also an imperative to lay aside yourself. Do to others. Do good to others. Do in the way that you want to be treated. And then Jesus begins to speak about that this love, this image-bearing love, this father-like love is not ordinary. This is no ordinary love. And he gives us three examples, but these I think these three examples really have a single message. And so I'm just going to talk about the, the one message. Basically, he says, if you love those who love you, what, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love people who love them. And if you give to those who are going to give in return, what good is that? Even sinners do that. In other words, Jesus is simply saying that the the image-bearing love of the Father exceeds that which you will find in our community and in our world. Even sinners love other sinners. I've often said that even probably some of the most despicable human beings who have ever lived on the earth have perhaps been kind and loved another person. Kingdom citizens, however, display an unusual ethic. One that people say, oh, where did that come from? That's not what I'm used to seeing. I'm used to seeing love come to here. Jesus is saying, no, love ascends to the top of Mount Everest. Radical love exceeds the world's standards. Kingdom citizens display an unusual ethic. This idea of I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine has no place in the kingdom that is giving without strings attached. In other words, giving without figuring out what are you going to give me? What what will I get in return? Well, I'll loan to you because then maybe down the road I can ask you a favor and you'll be in debt to me. Or we get this all the time. Again, we'll, we'll go to somebody... And they'll call and they'll say, well, I need my electric bill paid. And so we'll, we'll go and we'll take care of the electric bill. And I promise I'm going to come to church. I'm glad we don't bank on that. It just never happens. But we do not do that with the price that you come to church. I invite them. I encourage them. Perhaps even get their phone number and call them. Hey, Church is tomorrow. You want me to come pick you up? But the giving is not dependent upon that. And if we never see you again, we never see you again. And so the ethic has transcended the norm. 
And so we see then this idea of what does it mean to bear the image of God. The image of God is, is exemplified in love. That is, love acts. We see love illustrated. We see love commanded. And we see that the love ethic is not ordinary. That it, it, it exceeds what we seem as normal. And then Jesus comes, brings us to towards the end of this particular section and he says this. But love, once again he repeats this. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Now, first of all, we have to think, well, wait a second, I didn't think we were supposed to be expecting anything in return, and now there's a reward. I don't think there's a contradiction here. I don't think there is anything here that is a problem. Your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High. In other words, there is no contradiction, because... What he is talking about here, the promise for expressing God's type of love is God. More specifically, a relationship with God. You will be called the sons of the Most High. So the promise for expressing God's type love with others is to be and is to have a great and close relationship with the God who has filled you with this love. Remember, This is not speaking of entry into a relationship with him, but rather, this is the ethic that demonstrates the relationship. Remember, Jesus is saying, this is to you who hear, this is to you who are disciples. He's not telling you how to become a disciple. He's saying that as a disciple, you will prove yourself a disciple simply because you will be expressing this um, unusual love that is so out there that the people stand and take notice of it. This is not um, a message about merit for salvation. In other words, if you do these things, then you will be saved. Rather, it is recognition that as a faithful child of God, this is what you will look like. You will show yourself or you will prove yourselves to be children of the Most High God. And he concludes with this. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Do you see? Again, we see this similarity. We see this likeness. Your Father is merciful. You are merciful. And so this wraps it up. I want you to be image bearers. I want you to bear my likeness and go into the world and be fruitful and multiply, making disciples wherever you go and extending the image and glory of God over the land and so that God is glorified in all the earth. This is what Jesus is beginning. He's starting with 12 and perhaps some of these disciples who are, who are listening, but he's going to focus on 12 and they are his replacement and they will then go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth and they will extend the glory of God over the face of the earth. And as they are doing so, they will be making more image bearers. That's our job. To be fruitful and multiply, and in this sense, it is to make more disciples, more and better disciples who go into the world. So I'll I'll close with this. Jesus said this, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm not here to co-opt Jesus' words. But I would say this. Romans tells us that Jesus is fashioning us, in, or God is fashioning us into the image of his Son. So I'd ask this, when others look at the church on Randall Place, do they see the Father? And you're going, well, what would the Father look like? Well, we've just explained it. Are we loving our enemies? Are we blessing those who, who curse us? Are we praying for those who oppress us? Are we demonstrating an unusual... Uh, <clears throat> magnitude of love. When others look at the church on Randall Place, do they see the love of the Father? Do they see Jesus Christ? That's my charge then, is we need to be a church and hence as individuals 
we are to strive then to demonstrate this kind of ethic that Jesus has put down, that we would bear the image of God. See, bearing the image of Christ, that's what we've been called to do, is to bear the image of Christ. And let me warn you, if we bear the image of Christ, we may also bear the scars of Christ. I don't know that we can bear the image without bearing the scars. Paul says, you want my credentials? You want my credentials? I can imagine. He probably just took off his shirt or his tunic and rolled it down. See these scars? Those are my credentials. Those are my credentials as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I pray that bearing the scars of Christ would not be a hindrance to you and me. And they may be emotional, they may be mental, they may be physical, I don't know. But I guarantee you that if we are going to display this image-bearing ethic, oh, there will be a scar or two. But I'm saying that I pray that that's not a hindrance because there will be great joy and your reward will be a relationship with your Heavenly Father and He will love you and He will dwell with you and He will give you strength. So, with that, let's stand and let's pray and let these things, these <clears throat> this love um, that God has called us to never prompt us to seek revenge or retaliate, but to continue to minister regardless of the response. Our Father, we give you praise, we give you thanks for your love and kindness and how you have <clears throat> withheld nothing, that though you, Jesus Christ, had everything, you laid it aside that you might become a servant, even to the point of being sacrificed on the cross. There's our standard. There's the image of God. And Lord, we fall way short. This is still a lofty ethic. This is still a Mount Everest. Lord, I don't know that we can get there on our own. But I think together, Lord God, we can work with one another. And by your Holy Spirit, you will enable us, Lord God, to achieve what you have commanded. So give us strength and mercy. Grant us your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.